Hill Country Institute Live, Exploring Christ and Culture. This is Larry Leninschmidt, your host, and we're excited to have an ongoing conversation about issues of concern and interest to the body of Christ. Hill Country Institute Live brings guests together with you to talk about issues of vital interest in our lives today. We visit the life and works of giants of another day, such as C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, and also spend time with people in ministries doing creative work to fight human trafficking, feed the poor, create quality art, be good stewards of the environment, and much more, all with the heart and mind of Christ. If you're interested in learning about the programs of the Hill Country Institute and hearing and seeing presentations from our conferences on faith and science, faith and art, and other subjects, visit hillcountryinstitute.org. We promise in this show to show the heart and mind of Christ, to treat guests and callers with respect, even if we disagree, and to be true to the historic Christian faith. This episode is part two of a talk recorded in front of a live audience at Trinity University in San Antonio, Texas, by C.S. Lewis scholar Jerry Root. The talk was part of a Hill Country Institute conference on C.S. Lewis and the Divine Presence. In Of Other Worlds, Lewis tells a, a short story called The Shoddy Lands about a, uh, his opportunity to get inside the head of this particular woman named Peggy. She is very self-referential, very utilitarian. She has a swollen sense of self. And Lewis says that all of a sudden he heard a knocking and a knocking. Self-referential, utilitarian, and the knocking. And he heard a voice, let me in before the dawn is breaking. Every place in Lewis where we see somebody resisting the incarnational reality breaking in. There's a diminishment of the humanity. Weston, the most evil character in all of Lewis's books. He's called the Unman. Jadis, the queen of Charn, who becomes the white witch of Narnia, when her world of Charn rises up in rebellion against her because she's so evil. She has learned by magical arts how to say the deplorable word, which destroys everybody else and saves only herself. And at that particular moment, she becomes anti-Oslan or anti-Christ. The ghost in the abolition of man, as I've mentioned, excuse me, in, in the great divorce, and also Lewis's argument in the abolition of man. We deny reality, particularly the reality of God breaking in, and something in us dies. There's also queen or rule in till we have faces. The queen who's angry at God because God hasn't done things her way. She hides behind a veil, but finally is her development occurs. She asks the question, how can we meet the gods face to face until we have faces? She ends the first book of her charges against the God. I ask the question, but you give no answer. But later, as her hard heart gives way to this reality, which is iconoclastic, she concludes the book by saying, I know now, Lord, Why you utter no answer? The voice is flush with humility and honesty. It is because you are yourself the answer. And before your face, all questions die away. Again, Leanne Payne says, Lewis puts us in touch with incarnational reality. 
Lewis's own pilgrimage to faith, as he writes about it, he talks about uh, processing through the morass of atheism and its supporting materialism and finally coming to the place where he becomes a theist. But he says that he didn't think he could know God personally any more than Hamlet could know Shakespeare. He's using images to try to describe the complexity of this world. Two years later, he says it dawned on him that his analogy of Hamlet and Shakespeare was a good analogy. It just had to be modified a bit. You see, Hamlet could never break out of the play to get to know the author. But Lewis said it would have been possible for Shakespeare, the author, to write himself into the play as Shakespeare, the character, and make the introduction possible. And he said, in fact, I believe that's what happened in the incarnation. But we can't stop there. There's always more for Lewis. Lewis writes in Experiment and Criticism, in coming to understand anything, we must reject the facts as they are for us in favor of the facts as they are. And so we look at his image of Hamlet and Shakespeare. In uh, Selected Literary Essays, he says there's two kinds of metaphors. If there's two, there might be 22. The first kind is a pupil's metaphor. When we don't understand something and we're trying to set forth analogies and metaphors and similes in order to understand it. And the other is the master's metaphor, the teacher who understands the concept and takes and incorporates it in a story. Something like this. That we might get it. Take Lewis's analogy of Hamlet and Shakespeare, and we can see that even the way Lewis developed that exhibits both the pupil's metaphor and the master's metaphor. The pupil's metaphor, when he didn't understand the incarnation, and he said, I don't think I could know God personally any more than Hamlet could know Shakespeare, and the master's metaphor, when he does get it, and he says, let's look at this again, and he reshapes it, so we see, yeah, Shakespeare has written himself into the play. God the Son has come into our world. God the Son has sent the Holy Spirit to each of us. But we're not done then. Reality's iconoclastic. Larry's going to work it out, and we're all going to take a field trip to Elsinore in Denmark. He's got a time machine for us to travel in, and we're going to go back in time. And we're going to come to the court of the king. And we're going to discover that there's been odd things going around at the palace. The king has died in the height of his strength. The queen, Gertrude, has married her brother-in-law who has ascended to the new king. It didn't fall to the crown prince, Hamlet. And Hamlet's been acting mighty strange, we find out. Even reports that he's talked to the ghost of his father. He's been acting a little Mad, but some people say there's a method to his madness. And Ophelia, she's a basket case. And while we're walking through the courtyard talking about these things, Larry is our guide, we come upon this little man with Elizabethan tights, a little goatee and an earring in his ear. And we say, who are you and how did you get past the guards in all this strange goings-on? And he says, oh, uh, my name's Shakespeare. You actually live in a world I've created. I know things have been kind of sketchy lately. But I wanted to break in and let you know it'll all turn out all right in the end. Oh, there's going to be some sadness still up ahead. Don't, 
Don't, don't think that there won't be. But eventually all the wrongs will be redressed and justice will prevail. And what do we say to that little man? Yeah, sure. Right. And what do we say to God when he seeks to break in to our world? Oh, I wish I could have lived in the days of the historic incarnation. Wouldn't you have wanted to live then? To have been at the Sermon on the Mount, to watch Jesus' face as he spoke. Did he ever raise his eyebrows? To see his smile when he made particular points. Did he ever go up and cup somebody's face while he was talking with them? To have been at the feeding of the 5,000 and watched in wonder and awe as he took five loaves and two fish and broke them and satisfied the multitude. To have been in the boat with the disciples when he came walking on the water. Would we have gotten out with Peter? Or would we have stayed in the boat huddled, scared with the other disciples? I'd have liked to have been there just to find out what I would have done. To have been there in all the sorrow of the day of the crucifixion. And to have been there when that sorrow gave way to joy on the day of the resurrection. And we lived in that hope the rest of our days. But it's impossible for us to live in the days of the historic incarnation. But Jesus said, I will not abandon you. I will give you another helper. Allos parakletos in the Greek. Allos, another of the exact same kind. If I gave you all a piece of fruit, an orange... Then I gave you another piece of fruit, an apple. It would be a heteros, another of a different kind. But all us is another of the exact same kind. Parakletos, one called alongside. I will send you another, just like me. And he will take presence in your life. A healing presence, a guiding presence. A reminding presence. Because you see, we live in the days of the incarnation of the Holy Spirit who takes residence in the body of Christ and deploys us into the world. George MacDonald once wrote, we do not have souls. He said in Annals of a Quiet Neighborhood, we are souls, we have bodies. If you tell a child he has a soul, he thinks like anything else he has, his keys, his coat, his books, he can lose them. He thinks if he has a soul, that when he dies, he goes to the grave and his soul goes off someplace else. McDonald says, no, tell the child he is a soul. And when he dies, he goes off to heaven and he leaves his body behind like clipped hair on the barbershop floor for those that can still do that sort of thing, right, Larry? Well, the reading on the soul is complex. I think I could set forth proofs for the existence of the soul. But nevertheless, traditionally, we believe that the soul has these elements, the reason the emotion, the volition, the will. I live in an academic environment, and I want to tell you, I think by far the reason is the weakest part of our soul. Why? Because if I make a bad choice, my will, my, my reason doesn't kick in and say, boy, Jerry, you need to repent of that act. And you need to get back on track again. No, my reason being weak is marshaled by my will to make all kinds of excuses for that thing. To rationalize it. To enter into what uh, the philosophers called um, acrisia. Moral blindness. C.S. Lewis wrote in a preface to Paradise Lost, continued disobedience to conscience makes conscience blind. 
Paul said we suppress truth in our unrighteousness. If I'm wounded by something somebody did to me, and I try and manage it myself rather than understanding the Holy Spirit's way with me in those places, my reason will be of no help to me at all. My reason won't come to me and say, Jerry, you need to grieve and forgive what's happened to you. So you could be untethered from it. No, instead, my reason will suppress that wound, encapsulate it like a cyst on my soul, and it will fill with pus, and every time somebody bumps up against me, I'll just spew a little in their direction and a little in that person's direction. No, my reason's weak. Lewis says reason stands in front of our souls like dragon sentries monitoring what will get to us. And Lewis says, how do you get past the watchful dragon? He thinks story is one way. And not just the stories we pick up in Lewis himself and in other writers, but maybe too the stories of our lives and the stories of lives of others as we learn vicariously through those things. And they penetrate. And we begin to understand. So in light of that, let me take what we've said about Lewis the things that Liam Payne has pointed out about him, and let me encapsulate it in a kind of narrative or story. I believe, people, that our lives are like an old phonograph record. Do you guys even remember what phonograph records were? The beginning of our life, somebody puts a needle in our life, and we begin to play out our themes And as we play out those themes, invariably in this fallen world, the record of our life gets scratched. What did the old records do when they got scratched? They would skip, remember? They would go round, go round, go round, go round. I would suggest to you in this fallen world, all of us probably have two to five scratches pretty deep in our world. A lot of minor ones, but a few deep ones. And they get Velcroed to us, and we begin to define ourselves by virtue of those things. We were made to understand who we are in relationship with others. That makes sense because we're made in the image of a God who exists in Trinity. We're relational beings. But sometimes we can pick up bad messages from others too. One of my closest friends at Wheaton College is a theater prof, uh, Mark Lewis. You guys know him. Uh, Mark is the eighth born child, the last child, in a family that were well-meaning but rather fundamentalists in their theological proclivities. Mark was an artist, and he always felt like he was misunderstood in that context. When he was six years old, he desperately wanted to show his parents how much he loved them, and he wanted them to see him communicate his love through his artistic ability. So... One day when his folks were gone and one of the older siblings was supposed to be watching him, you know how that can go, he got out his crayons, he got out his felt-tip pencils, he got out his uh, uh, marking pens and his paints, and he spent the whole day painting a mural up the back white wall of their staircase in their house. And the whole time he's thinking, well, mom and dad see this. They're going to say, wow, look how much Mark loves us. He imagined them bringing in the neighbors and saying, look what Mark did for us. He must really love us. Well, you know what happened when his folks got home. He got what for? 
said the sad thing for him was not for him was not that he got spanked, but that his parents didn't see what he was trying to communicate. Fast forward, the autumn play was going on. Mark's daughter, Ruby, was in the kitchen, and Mark had come home for a one-hour window. He had been teaching. He had been doing uh, faculty governance meetings, grading papers, student appointments. He had a one-hour window to come home, collect himself, get dinner, and then go back for rehearsals that went long into the night. And his daughter, Ruby, six years old, was standing at the sink on a chair. She had a plastic basin in the, in, in, in the sink, and she was filling it with water, and the water splashing all over. And Mark's thinking to himself, I just came home to get some rest. I got to clean up this mess. He gets up, he goes, Ruby, Ruby, honey, what are you doing? She bursts into tears. And Mark's wife, Mary, says, Mark, she knew you were weary. She was just putting water in a basin so she could wash her feet. And immediately, Mark remembers his own six-year-old experience. And he says, oh, Ruby, I'm so sorry, honey. Let me help you. And he takes the basin, he puts it on the floor. He says, it was the coldest water he ever put his feet in in his life. <laughs> we hear that story and we're moved by it. Why? Because every one of us was on both sides of that story. We've all been the one who was misunderstood. And we've all been the one who did the misunderstanding. Donald Miller said he learned in high school that he needed to gain his sense of self based on how others looked at him, but all the people he looked to were as insecure as he was. And these scratches end up in our record. And we need to find out what God thinks of us at those places, that we might be rescued from those things. Well, consequently, because of these scratches, we end up with what psychologists call repetition in search of mastery. We want to get past that place where our development has been truncated. And we can move on to maturation. We also find that we look for surrogates. You're driving down the road, somebody honks, uh, cuts you off, you honk at them, that's one thing. But if 20 miles down the road you're still tailgating that person, honking at them, screaming obscenities at them, it's not about them cutting you off. They've probably become a surrogate with whom you're trying to work through some of that deep, deep pain inside. We also tend towards anesthetizing behaviors, the things Lewis called false infinites, the thing Leanne Payne calls idols. These anesthetizing behaviors um, are things like uh, eating disorders, workaholism, drug addiction, alcohol addiction, sexual addiction, um, there can be odd ones, too. Every Hell's Angel-type person I've ever worked with, when I got close to them, I found out they had a marshmallow heart, and the hard veneer was only a kind of anesthetizing behavior. I know a man who creates chaos in his world to deflect everybody's attention to that rather than have them see the chaos and storm that's raging in his own heart. But these anesthetizing behaviors, they don't get us better. They just get us by. They put us in control. We can deaden the pain, but we can't get better. We need the incarnational reality of the Holy Spirit to set us free from these things. As we age, we develop convictions. And these convictions usually run at cross purposes to the anesthetizing behaviors. We find ourselves in the middle of Romans 7. The very thing I desire to do, I don't do. And the thing I find myself doing is not something I want to do. Why do we continue on? And when Paul says Jesus can help us, how? 
I think the reason why we continue, even at cross-purposes with our convictions, holding on to the anesthetizing behaviors are because our wounds are deeper than our convictions. Or as C.S. Lewis wrote, our desire is stronger than reason. So how do we get better? Let me tell you a story to get past watchful dragons. True story. Third worst story I've ever heard in my life. About a boy. True. It's not my story, but it's true. I know it's details. A boy who about four years old, his mother dies giving birth to a younger brother. I think he's going to have abandonment issues. Scott Peck in The Road Less Traveled talks about certain traumas we can experience before the age of 12 that just stay with us. When there's fracturing in a family, when a parent dies, look at C.S. Lewis, his mother died at nine. He was told by well-meaning but misinformed people, if you pray for her, she'll get better. He prayed, she didn't get better. They said, pray harder. He prayed harder, and she died. And in some ways, he felt responsible for her birth, or for her death. And children begin to interpret these things. It gets Velcroed to their identity and sense of self. Things are tragic. I think this boy is going to have some abandonment issues. They say you can have a child whose parent divorces and leaves, and that child says, if I would have performed more, I think dad might have stayed. But dad left. I need to keep performing more so this never happens again. Another child says, mom left. I must be dirt. Have you ever met really high control people? Break your heart for them. They're usually masking some wound. Those could be three responses of three kids in the same family. And I'm sure that's not the limit to the number of responses we can have. Anyway, I think this boy's going to have some abandonment issues. He's raised in a large family. It's an abusive family. And he gets the brunt of the, the, brunt of the grunt of that family. Horribly abused. Not sexually abused, but physically and emotionally abused. When he's 17 years old, he's kicked out of the family with no visible means of support. Has to make it on his own. He's a clever guy. He moves up. He gets a job. He moves up the place of employment. Uh, and, and when he's as high as he can get, given his limited circumstances, somebody at work files a sexual harassment charge against him and he goes to prison for seven years. I believe he was innocent. My college roommate murdered his wife on their third, uh, sixth anniversary, slit her throat from cover, ear to ear. He went to prison for three and a half years. This guy goes to prison for seven years for trumped up charges. This guy's got scratches in his record galore, doesn't he? Can he get better? In fact, he does. Do you know whose story I just told you? Anybody? I thought I heard a word. Who? It is Joseph's story. Exactly. We're all familiar with it. All these principles are in the Bible. That's where Lewis and Liam Payne and so on draw on them. Not only from their own experience, but from Scripture themselves. Joseph's story. His mother Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. He's raised in an abusive family. Why were the brothers so abusive towards him? Because he was the favored one of his father, Jacob, who should have known better because Jacob was the unloved son of his father, Isaac, who preferred Esau over him. Richard Rohr, the Catholic theologian, pastoral theologian, says pain not transformed is transferred. Pain not transformed is transferred. And only God can transform us at these places. 
I think the brothers were angrier at the father, but Joseph was the easier target. He sold into slavery at age 17. He ends up in Potiphar's house. He's a clever guy. He works up the ladder. And uh, she, his wife charges her with sexual harassment. He's in, in prison for seven years. I don't know about you. If I was training a person to be uh, the, the uh, provost or, the, or, excuse me, the, the uh, prime minister of Egypt, I don't know if I would have said, um, you need to go to prison for seven years so you can pick up some real skills. I'd have probably sent him to Harvard for an MBA or something like that. But God has his ways through all of our brokenness for purposes he has. He's in the great recycle business. How does Joseph get better? He has two children. When he's finally elevated second only to Pharaoh in Egypt, he's given the priest's daughter for a wife, and he has two children. And what he names those two children give us a clue to his healing process. The first child's name is Manasseh. Manasseh means I forget because Joseph said the Lord made it possible for me to forget what happened in my father's house. I don't think he forgot historically and cognitively. I think he processed forgiveness to the place where those events didn't hold him anymore. If we've been hurt by somebody, we will tether our emotion to that event. And those people will control us the rest of our days. If we don't learn the way of grace the way of the Holy Spirit coming into our life and giving us the power to grieve and forgive. For forgiveness is like grief. You read the grief observed and you see how long the process took for Lewis to, to uh, deal with his wife's death. I don't know that he ever finished that process. You read in his letters about his talking six months before he died about that horrible headmaster that was at the school he was sent to after his mother died. And how only six months before he died, he's able to say, I think I've finally forgiven that guy. It was a process for him. Uh, it was Anne Lamott in her book, Traveling Mercies, who says bitterness, which is a result of unwillingness to forgive, bitterness is like you drinking the rat poison and then waiting for the rat to die. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, everybody thinks forgiveness is a good idea until they have somebody to forgive. Lewis says, when Jesus said, don't forgive seven times, forgive 70 times seven, it might take 490 attempts to get past one of those deep, deep scratches. As you continue to forgive, continue to extend grace to that person. Oh, by the way, remember, pain not transformed is transferred. If you're not working on this, I guarantee you, you're leaving in your wake continuity to the generational sins you've received. And when you begin to discover that, you might find that you need to go back and ask forgiveness of some people as well. But the God who forgives is the God who will give you the grace to do that. C.S. Lewis wrote in The Four Loves, Man approaches God most nearly when he is in one sense least like God. For what could be more unlike than fullness and need, sovereignty and humility, righteousness and penitence, limitless power and a cry for help. This paradox, he said, staggered me when I first ran into it. We're most like God in the world when we're most unlike him in relationship with him. We go to God in utter dependence upon him, unlike him. Because he alone is the independent, self-existent one. 
And then he sends us into the world like him, independent of the world, so we could be givers rather than takers. We could be self-aware, not self-referential. We could be serving, not utilitarian. When we go back and start to ask forgiveness of others, we don't tell the people we've hurt this, but in our own minds we say, oh, if you only knew, though, I was doing the best I knew how, and a light goes on, that the people who hurt you were probably doing the best they knew how as well. And it makes forgiving them easier. It makes trying to understand the world they came from significant. As a matter of fact, you having received the benefits of the incarnation are allowed to enter in an incarnation-like way even with the people you hurt and you cultivate empathy towards them. And the second child that's born to Joseph is named Ephraim, which means be fruitful. Get on with the fruitful purposes for which God made you. This is incarnational reality. This is the work of the Holy Spirit to transform us inside out. Now close with this one image from Lewis. By far the most spiritually sensitive person in the Narnian books, the outsiders coming into that world, was Lucy. You can't read those books without falling in love with her. Didn't they do a great job casting her in the movie? One of the best things about that movie was this girl they casted for Lucy. My wife and I saw that and we said, we want to adopt her. But in the Don Treader, they come to this island. It's the chapter called the Island of the Voices. And they find that there are some very strange people or beings of some sort who talk and they have pointy spears and they don't know how many they are. And they've captured them and they've said, there's a governor who runs this island and he's uglified us. We need to be made visible again. And the only way we can be made visible is if a girl goes into the magician's house up to the second floor and goes to the magician's library and reads from the spell of the magician's book, that spell that will make visible again. Well, Lucy's the one who's elected to do it. It has to be a little girl. She can't see anybody in this world, and she doesn't know if somebody might be after her in this house and who is this magician who's been described so horribly to her by the uh, duffel puds are really monopods but they confuse even their own identity and call themselves duffel puds she goes up to the second floor and she stands uh, with her back to the door which is would make anybody nervous before this big book and she can't open it and she realizes oh it's got clasps she unclasps it she opens the book and it had a nice smell and it was tingly to the touch it had fine, thick downstrokes and thin upstrokes in the calligraphy. And she noticed the margins. There were all kinds of pictures in the margins. And she starts to see that they're animated. And as she reads through the book, she didn't know where the spell was. And the duffel puds didn't know where to tell her it would be. So she has to start from the beginning and go through this book. And she sees spells for how to capture a swarm of bees, how to make it rain when it hasn't rained for a long time, how to make it stop raining when it's rained too frequently, how to turn a man's head into a donkey's head like they did to bottom in Shakespeare's uh, Midsummer Night Dream. 
And finally she comes this one spell. And it's a spell for making one more beautiful than the lot of mortals. Lucy has always been the overlooked sister. Everybody's concentrated on Susan, the more beautiful one. And all of a sudden she sees in the margin the animation of a girl standing, looking at a big book, very much like Lucy. And she sees the girl in the picture utter these words. And she sees everybody standing around her sister who looks like Susan. And she sees all those people leaving Susan behind and coming over and looking at her and staring at her and fighting for her honor. And wars begin to occur and ships are launched and armies deployed. Lucy said, I'm going to say it. And all of a sudden, the face of Aslan comes out. There's the reality, the incarnational reality confronting us, even at the place of our excesses and intemperance. Lucy turns the page real quick. Have you ever had a time in your life where you were faced with just this overwhelming temptation and you escaped it and the next little thing that came up, you just gave it to yourself as a gift because you deserved it, you see. So the next temptation is how to listen into what your friends are saying about you when you're not there. And so she just, without letting conscience kept up, keep up to her thoughts, she just utters the spell. Next thing she knows, she's listening in on a train that's going by. And she hears one of her close friends talking to her arch enemy at school. And the arch enemy is just saying horrible things about Lucy. And she's goading the other friend to agree. And the other friend in a weak moment agrees. And Lucy just bursts into tears. And she's so angry and she's so bitter. How could she do this? How could she do this? Weary and broken, she moves on a couple of pages. And she comes to a spell for the refreshment of the spirit. Goes on for three pages. And it ends after three pages, and she said, it was so beautiful, I wanted to read it again. And she tried to go back, but in this book, you can only go forward, you can't go back. This spell will only allow you to go forward and not back. And all of a sudden, the words on the page start to disappear. She says, this is a queer book. But she remembers it was about a cup and a sword and a tree and a green hill. And ever after that, for the rest of her life, whenever Lucy read a story that she thought was a good story, it was a story that reminded her of the story in the magician's book. And a couple pages later, she reads a spell to make things invisible, visible again. And when she utters it, Aslan is right there in the room. said, Aslan, how did you get here? He said, oh, dear heart, I've been here all along. Lewis says, sometimes we feel like God's abandoned us, but that's our feelings. The reality is, he never leaves us. Noslan says to her, you've been listening in where you shouldn't listen in, Lucy. He said, oh, Aslan, will it ever be better? He says, a person's never allowed to know what it might have been. And then Lucy looks at Aslan those great big forgiving eyes of his, those gracious eyes, those loving eyes. And she says to him, Aslan, there was a story I read in the book. 
It was the best story I ever heard. Will you tell it to me again? Oh, do, 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 do. He says, dear heart, that's one story I will tell to you over and over and over again. Now come, let us meet the master of this house. What were those four spells? The first one was the fall, the exaltation of self against the rest of the world. We might not have been in Eden, but we've allowed ourselves plenty of opportunity to exalt ourselves over others. And so the spell listening in is the application of our brokenness, the, the universal brokenness to our own life. The next spell was the gospel story. It was about a cup that Jesus drank, a sword of death that he died, a tree on which he hung, and a green hill called Calvary. It goes three days like Jesus was in the grave, three pages like Jesus was in the grave, three days. And it's a story that once you've encountered it, you can only go forward. You can't go back. And it's a story that leads to one becoming solid again. The restoration of the abolition of man, becoming whole in ever-progressing ways that we might understand that because this reality is iconoclastic and there's room for us to grow. And it is the story that Aslan will be telling to us over and over and over again every chapter of our life. We're done.